This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Kai Arulkumaran is a researcher at Araya in Tokyo, Japan. Kai, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about your main area of focus? Right. So I don't really have a focus.、Uh, I think I'm known for, for kind of branching out and doing lots of different things.、Um, but the sort of underlying thing that's interested me is to understand and replicate biological intelligence and apply this to real world tasks. Uh, so, my main topics are deep learning and reinforcement learning.、Uh, if you place researchers who are interested in general AI on a sort of spectrum between first principles or good old fashioned symbolic AI versus whole brain replication, then、uh, I'm interested in cognitive principles、um, and less at the level of neurons. So, sitting a little more on the neuroscience side、um, than maybe some end to end. Uh, deep learning people,、um, but I'm also not tied to this sort of thing. So I've worked on practical applications from robotics to medical imaging and even more fundamental deep learning things like architectures like adaptive neural trees. Can you tell us a bit about Araya? Sure. So Araya was founded by Ryota Kanai about half a decade ago、uh, to work at the intersection of AI and neuroscience. So, the engineering department provides AI solutions,、uh, whereas the research department just goes ahead and does fundamental research. So, Ryota and a lot of the other researchers here specialize in consciousness, which is fascinating. So, we all believe we have it,、uh, but we don't really know what it is, what it's useful,、uh, if it's useful at all, or if it's just a side effect of、um, other things that are happening in the brain. So, one can argue that being self aware,、uh, having a model of yourself is useful for interacting with the world, but why do we actually feel things? And、um, this, this idea of qualia is my feeling of redness the same as your feeling of redness? So, theories of consciousness are holistic theories of brain function, and some examples include global workspace theory.、Um, so, I see these as inspiration for AI.、Um, But also, like better AI models that have been developed in recent years can drive forward neuroscience research. And so we set up the synergy, hoping that、um, we can use the latest in AI to drive neuroscience research、uh, and neuroscience research to drive AI. And so, yeah, we're looking for experienced AI researchers who want to work at this intersection. So, how did you get、uh, into reinforcement learning?、Uh, so, when I finished my undergrad degree, Uh, which is computer science at Cambridge University. I became a web developer just because I enjoyed it.、Um, but half a year later, when the startup I joined failed to monetize and everyone got laid off, I thought about what I really wanted to do and remembered that as a kid, I love robots.、Uh, so I applied to the bioengineering masters at Imperial College with the hope of learning how to make Androids. Um, when I was there, I remembered I was terrible at maths, but I could program. So I joined a computer vision lab for my master's project.、Uh, there, the supervisor, Enel Barath, worked on biologically inspired computer vision. And、uh, this was back in 2014, and he was ready to transition into deep learning. So he asked me to join and help with that. 
And given that DeepMind was showing demos of the DQN back then, it uh, felt like it was the good time to try and do end-to-end -end control for robots um, directly from pixels. So during the MSC, I actually did my first course in machine learning, but I switched off after the lecture started talking about infinite dimensions and managed to just about scrape a C at the end of it. Um, so before my PhD, I did Andrew Ng's Coursera course on machine learning, which is fantastic. Um, and that sort of pragmatic view really helped me understand what was going on. Uh, and then once my PhD started, actually, I did Jeff Hinton's Coursera course in deep learning. Um, and then, you know, a few months in, I actually realized that what I wanted to do um, was a field that existed and it was called reinforcement learning and started learning from there using Sartin and Bartow's book. Um, so yeah, even even now, I, I feel like I'm still bad at maths and it goes over my head, but I try and learn when I can. So uh, I started studying, and then months later, when I handed in my first year plan, I told my supervisor I had bad news, and he said, don't tell me Google have announced that they're going to apply deep reinforcement learning to robotics. Oh no. And I, I was just uh, silent because the day before David Silver had announced that Google was interested in applying their techniques to robotics. Um, so one of my first year examiners, Mark Diesenroth, said I'd have to be really stubborn uh, to try and compete with DeepMind. Um, so yeah, we still laugh about it because I am really stubborn. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd really like to express my gratitude to my supervisor, Mark, and others in Imperial who believed in someone who's basically trying to solve AGI without even knowing what optimal control was. Uh -huh. So um, can you tell us a bit, a bit more about uh, your early days with, uh, with RL? Yeah, so back then there was far less research software available, um, especially very little for reinforcement learning. So had to start from there, I felt. So first I investigated what frameworks there was there. There was Theano, Cafe, Torch 7. Uh, they were somewhere paint and install and manage, especially Cafe and CUDA's still a bit painful to deal with. Um, so I used my web developer experience to leverage Docker, made CUDA Docker images for all of the main frameworks. And um, that turned out to be really popular and, and you know frameworks have started adopting this. And eventually NVIDIA told me, oh, we're going to make our own CUDA uh, Docker support. So hopefully uh, things are in a much better position. Uh, so I chose Torch 7 because I like that best and then uh, I realized I needed a way to manage experiments and there was sacred in Python, but nothing language agnostic in Torchstone was lower. So I built my own called FGLab using Node.js, which uses the servant client architecture to dispatch jobs and collect data in MongoDB. Um, so again, like the scene is a lot better now, but I guess language agnostic frameworks are still a bit rare. Um, so then going on to RL, I realized we'd lack standard benchmark code. Um, so inspired by this previous research project called RL Glue, which was built in Java, I built um, this library called RL Ends, which is a set of classic reinforcement learning environments in Lua, um, also including Atari and you know someone contributed a Minecraft wrapper. Um, and then months later, OpenAI released OpenAI Gym in Python. Uh, so clearly I had a good idea, but chose the wrong language. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, so we, we like good RL baselines um, to do research with. So I made this Atari code base, which contained all of DeepMind's DQN variants up to that point. Um, so that was actually most of the way to rainbow. Maybe I should have done that. Um, and yeah, actually later on in my PhD, I made a clean reproduction of DeepMind's rainbow agent, uh, which took months of work. And though ironically, I still haven't used it to do my own novel research. It's great to see it acknowledged in uh, a lot of research papers from other labs such as Berkeley. Uh, so one, one question I often get um, is how did I manage to get so many research internships? And um, it actually came from doing all of this work. So uh, Sumis Chintala and Alikant Chani at Fair and Twitter liked my contributions to the Torch 7 ecosystem, and they recommended me for internships. And similarly, Tom Scholl at DeepMind, like my Atari library, and uh, Advit Sarkar at uh, Microsoft Research recommended me for being able to work on DeepRL and research engineering. Um, so actually, all of these opportunities came through my open source work, um, which is really awesome and totally unexpected. Um, so yeah, I got, I got to work on super resolution with Wenchi Shi, uh, model-based RL, Katja Hoffman, um, with a preprint out on archive, uh, multi-agent RL with Siming Ling, and memory augmented RNNs with da David Reichert. So um, a lot of fun to branch out with those. Um, and yeah, just because I had recommendations doesn't mean I didn't have to go through the normal recruitment process. So don't worry, like I, I still had to sit through all of the interviews. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, well... This is sort of three years in, I, I had a lot of opportunities. Actually, looking back, I spent, you know, almost a year of my PhD just re-implementing uh, others' work um, and reading and studying before I felt confident enough to work on my own novel research, uh, especially as nobody in my lab knew about reinforcement learning. And the only deep learning we had was on restricted Boltzmann machines. So. Uh, I was largely self-taught. Um, so yeah, in, in 2016, at that point, the main recipe for research was take something from classic RL and make it deep. Um, so I was interested in hierarchical reinforcement learning and made the deep option Q network with Nat Dilithanical from Mari Shanahan's lab. Um, and this was just about the right timing. So. Simultaneously, uh, there was work on the hierarchical DQN and the hierarchical DeepRL network, um, but we only managed to run ours on this simple catch domain. Um, but this turned out to be the start of some fruitful collaborations with Marius Labs. So, um, this including helping Motta Garnello on her work combining uh, deep and symbolic approaches to RL to overcome poor generalization of standard deep reinforcement learning methods. So one advantage that I had of being largely self-taught was that I really had to amass a lot of knowledge myself instead of relying on others. Uh, so when my supervisor suggested writing a survey paper, uh, which I did with the help of Mark and Miles Brundage, um, it took about half a year full time. It was really a lot of work, um, but produced something that I'm really proud of and happily it was really well received by the community. Awesome, and it also um, received a, a good count of citations. I noticed, and we'll have a link to it in the uh, in the episode page. Let's talk about one of your first author papers, 
AlphaStar, an evolutionary computation perspective, and trying to bridge DRL and the evolutionary computation communities. So what's the basic idea here with this paper? Right. So in January 2019, DeepMind revealed AlphaStar to the world. And this was the first AI system to, let's say, fairly beat a professional player at StarCraft II. And DeepMind has experts in reinforcement learning and game theory, so they used insights from those fields to develop AlphaStar. But if you think about populations of agents interacting and learning, well, that's evolution. And I felt there was enough information from the blog post to actually try and form a link between uh, AlphaStar and the field of evolutionary computation, which also has decades of research. So I'm not too familiar with the, the evolutionary computation world. Um, I did one project using uh, genetic algorithms uh, for civil engineering, which, which worked out. But, um, but I don't know much about the rest. I gather it includes things like uh, genetic algorithms. But can you tell us more about uh, what EC entails? Sure. So um, EC is family of global optimization algorithms inspired by biology, uh, most famously genetic algorithms. Um, so essentially, you have a population of solutions which slowly change over time and they're subject to natural or artificial selection, as it were. Um, so the fitness just increases gradually over time. And it can include approaches such as ant colony optimization and particle swarm optimization. Um, so evolutionary algorithms use mechanisms that are inspired by biological evolution. Uh, which includes selection, so you know, think of survival of the fittest, uh, crossover, which is akin to sexual reproduction, and mutation. Uh, so, for example, vanilla particle swarm optimization doesn't have crossover or mutation. So, the most famous, the basic genetic algorithm is given your population of candidate solutions, you evaluate their fitness, uh, select some of the best, use these to create the next population and then just repeat. Um, some well-known classes include evolution strategies, which sort of performs approximately gradient descent, uh, genetic programming where you evolve programs and neuroevolution uh, where you can evolve neural network architectures. So the pro and the con is that they're black box and they don't need gradients. Uh, so they're good for exploring noisy fitness landscapes but they don't uh, normally exploit local knowledge like gradients. So they're not so competitive for supervised learning, but they can be useful for things like reinforcement learning, where evaluation is noisy, or say nested optimization, where it might be quite expensive to calculate gradients. Okay, so in the abstract of this paper, it says, we highlight some of its most interesting uh, aspects, the use of Lamarckian evolution, competitive coevolution and quality diversity. Can you um, help us understand uh, these terms and, and how they map to, to the AlphaStar concepts? Sure. So firstly, um, population-based training was used for the AlphaStar League and uh, can categorize that as a steady-state Lamarckian evolutionary algorithm. So Lamarckian evolution in biology was this idea that uh, offspring can inherit characteristics that were obtained during the lifetime with the parent. So 
for example, if your parents studied a lot, then somehow you'd be born smart. Um, so this doesn't happen, but uh, it can be used algorithmically, of course. So in population-based training, the solutions, which are these agents, uh, are trained using local optimization, so backpropagation on this reinforcement learning objective. Um, but at the outer level, the fitters networks are copied and the hyperparameters are mutated. And so these might find better solutions. And as opposed to generational algorithms where uh, only candidate solutions from one generation exist at once, uh, steady state algorithms have this continuously evolving population, which is much better suited for asynchronous and distributed computation. Um, interestingly, there's a slightly uh, different thing called Baldwinian evolution, where instead of the final parameters of the solution being copied, uh, the initial parameters are reproduced. Um, and this is actually a meta-learning algorithm. So um, it's the solutions that optimize well that actually survive. Baldwinian, is that a bit more like biological evolution? Uh, so not an expert on biology, but as far as I know, yes, this is... Um, part of the modern sort of theories of biological evolution. Cool. Okay. And then what about the um, co-evolution? Right. So with co-evolution, um, the fitness of agents is evaluated against other agents. So this is as opposed to a static fitness landscape. Um, so you can actually see this as a superset of self-play. Uh, so rather than evaluating against yourself or even past selves, you evaluate against a diversity of solutions, and therefore you're less likely um, to overfit or get stuck in cycles. Um, and like self-play, this induces a curriculum, so things just get better over time. Uh, one of the interesting things with AlphaStar is that while in evolutionary computation, um, usually these interactions, these pairings are typically randomly uniform, um, AlphaStar actually pairs agents with similar fitnesses. So this is um, something that's less common in the EC literature. And then the third part, which um, we talked about, is quality diversity. So there is a single main objective, um, which is optimizing the ELA rating. But in a complex game, there's no single best strategy. So like rock, paper, scissors, it's non-transitive. And from the game theory perspective, DeepMind says that they want to find this complementary set of least exploitable strategies. But we can also look at this um, somewhat as a quality diversity algorithm. So in a quality diversity algorithm, we define a set of niches, which is um, typically based on, on some behavior descriptor. And we keep the best solutions in each niche, even if they're not globally optimal. And this allows us to basically collect a diverse set of solutions um, where some of them might be better in different settings. So, uh, for example, Antoine in his 2015 Nature paper um, used this to um, find a set of locomotions uh, gates for a robot. And if it was damaged, then it could quickly uh, find one of these diverse gates that would allow it to still walk. So in the case of AlphaStar, um, the sort of niches could be building more of a unit type or beating another unit type or even a mix of this. And so it's a quite a complex 
uh, quality diversity algorithm with niches that adapt over time, which is a bit like Uber AI's poet algorithm. So when you um, first encountered it, like, were you surprised by how much detail they put into the design of AlphaStar League? Like, there's just so many things um, going on in there. I wonder, would the evolutionary computation community um, kind of um, recognize some of this stuff, or were they really pushing the envelope in the AlphaStar League design? Yeah, so I think they really did push the envelope um, with with a lot of these ideas. I'm not. I'm, I'm still mainly more of a deep learning reinforcement learning researcher, so I can't say everything that's going on in the EC community. Um, so from my perspective, I think um, there were some novel things, and yeah, with writing this paper, um, the goal was really to try and bridge the communities. So um, this was presented at Gecko. Um, and so hopefully the EC community could see really what was being um, pushing the envelope of AI in general. Um, but also on the other side, I'm hoping that people who are interested in multi-agent systems and diversity um, will be interested in checking out the literature in evolution computation, uh, find out what's happening there, and then try and connect it back to their own interests. Cool. Okay, uh, let's move on to um, your next paper where your co-author... Uh, analyzing deep reinforcement learning agents trained with domain randomization, and that was Dai et al. 2019. So can you tell us about the main idea in, in this paper? I was originally motivated by trying to apply deep reinforcement learning to robotics, and um, you know we thought that we might need fundamental advances to do so. Um, but domain randomization, which is essentially data augmentation applied to reinforcement learning, allowed quite a substantial amount of sim to real transfer, maybe only requiring a little bit of fine tuning. And it's it's really simple. Um, so what's going on here? Um, so the idea with this paper was to try and open up the black box a little bit and find out what's going on with uh, DR as opposed to not training with DR. Uh, so the setup is we train two different robots, the Fetch Mobile Manipulator and the Canova Jayco Arm, with or without proprioceptive sensors, with or without DR, um, and we train it on this simple vision-based target reaching task, which is quite common. And then we test its out-of-distribution generalization and also use a range of interpretability methods to characterize what strategies were learned. So can we talk about um, some of the findings, um, and especially maybe what, was, what, what wasn't surprising to you or what was surprising to you? Right. So as a forward, I'll say that the results we found are specific to our setup. So we expect that these might generalize a little bit. Um, but the sort of large takeaway is that if anyone's interested in looking and understanding their agents, then you should really actually run a wide range of interpretive methods in order to help your understanding of them, especially because a lot of these can be subjective. And you know, if we're doing proper science, then our prior assumptions about what's going on may be wrong. Uh, and one of the most important things was having a sort of control element to make relative statements. So for example, um, analyzing agents trained with DR versus no DR is much better than trying to make absolute statements about agents trained with DR. With DR, actually what we did is we varied colors and textures. Um, so this is a simple form of DR. 
and this provides some robustness to out-of-distribution inputs, um, such as destructor objects, but it can fail with global changes, like uh, changes in illumination or translating the camera, um, unless you explicitly train for this. So uh, the question is, do we have to account for all of these things in advance, or do we need smarter solutions? So what's going on with the agents that we train? So um, one of the main techniques, saliency maps show that agents trained um, without DR respond to distractors, um, while those that were trained with DR generally don't. Um, interestingly, the fetch agent actually uses vision to help localize the gripper, um, even when it's provided uh, perfect proprioceptive information. So um, it seems like it's an easy enough solution to learn um, visual localization that the agent actually does this. An interesting point is that the Jaco agent, without proprioception, um, it barely has any very visible saliency around the arm. Um, so actually, you can't really see it unless you're expecting it. And this is something that really shows that saliency maps can be subjective because um, if the agent, if we didn't know that the agent solved the problem and had no access to proprioception, um, then we wouldn't have realized that it must be looking at the arm in order to solve the problem. Another common technique, uh, we use activation maximization, and we see that without domain randomization, the agents mainly learn red or blue color filters in the second convolutional layer, uh, whereas the agents trained with DR actually learn these oriented uh, vertical or horizontal red-blue grids um, with actually a little bit of a bull motif. So you can really see um, the strategy that the agent is learning through these filters. And quantitatively, um, with domain randomization, uh, the layer two filters have significantly um, higher L1 norms, and the layer one filters have um, lower power spectral entropy, um, which is a measure introduced by my supervisor, and it basically uses the Fourier domain to characterize the structure. So, what what do these tell you um, when you when you find? these things about the, the grids and the, what's happening, the different layers and the norms. What, what is your takeaway from, from finding those? Right, so this, this gives us an idea of like how is the agent actually solving the problem. So for example, with the, the red and blue color filters and doing that in tandem with say the um, distractor test, we can see that um, if we change, if we use distractors that are different shape, um, then the agent might still respond because it's it's just the same color, mm -hmm. right? Um, whereas if the distractor is um, a different color, um, then it might still be fine. Uh, whereas the agents that are trained with domain randomization, which are like learning these filters, which we can see, really will localize and do kind of look for color and shape, um, then this is how they're so much more robust to distractors, for example. Cool. So looking more broadly, the looking at the representations learned, um, we use this measure called entanglement, which is basically how much the representations between classes overlap as a measure of invariance. Um, so in RL, instead of 
classes, actually we use the different out of distribution test scenarios. So this is distractors or illumination, for example. And we see that entanglement always increases with depth from the convolutional layers to the fully connected layers. Um, but for the DR agents, the entanglement of each layer is always higher than the equivalent layers uh, entanglement in the non-DR agents. Um, so this is something we might expect, but it's nice to have this quantitative confirmation that the agents are basically learning to be invariant to nuisance factors. Now, moving towards the top of the network, um, we ablate the recurrent state by setting it constant. And technically this reaching problem is an MDP, so it's not needed. And this ablation has a small effect on agents trained without DR, but it really has a large effect on agents um, trained um, with it. And so we can't tell exactly what's going on, but we assume that the agent has learned some sort of state estimation implicitly in order to help it solve the problem. And lastly, we use reinitialization robustness as a measure of um, the actual network capacity that's used during training. And generally, the convolutional layers take much longer to stabilize than the recurrent fully connected layers, except for the JCO agent trained with proprioception, where the fully connected layer is important and takes much longer to learn. One of the most surprising findings is that the JCO agent trained with domain randomization, but without proprioception, um, learned to solve the task almost perfectly when the visuals were randomized, but only 65% of the time with the standard simulation visuals, which indicates some sort of overfitting. Hmm. And it generalizes fine um, for the agent that was trained with proprioception. Um, so it shows that it's not just this uh, DR versus no DR condition, but actually the input modalities and even the morphologies that the robots can influence the strategies that are learned. Um, so yeah, in summary, this was, I believe, the largest set of interpretability techniques applied to deep reinforcement learning agents. And uh, there's lots of results, so check the paper for a more thorough breakdown and, and references to all of these different methods. Cool. And uh, and yeah, the link to, link to all these papers will be in the episode page. Um, I wondered, do you think that uh, domain randomization will become like even more important going forward? I mean, will it, will it, is this a long-term strategy or, cause I, I guess I've wondered about how it scales the more factors of randomization you add. And uh, like, do we need to, you know, um, do we need to show it every single combination of everything that can vary? Like it seems that as the number of factors grows, the number of combinations um, grow very quickly. So I wonder, what, what do you think about that? Right, so there's still a lot of interest, growing interest even on using procedural content generation um, to apply domain randomization in different ways. So um, even so, we looked very specifically at a small set of visual perturbations and showed that under this set, then there's some generalization, um, but it's still limited. Um, whereas you can randomize the dynamics and you can do much more clever things as well. Um, and it seems like we do need some level of domain randomization or procedural content generation um, to really gather enough data. But it's also clear that 
um, if we want to solve problems, uh, at least in this sort of period of history, um, without having to rely on an enormous amount of compute or giant models, then we will also need to um, bake some more um, prize into our models and the training. Cool. Okay. Let's move uh, to your next uh, co-author paper. That's training agents using upside down reinforcement learning. That's uh, Srivastava et al. Uh, 2019. So you mentioned you were an intern at uh, Naissance um, and you worked on uh, upside down reinforcement learning there and, and you're planning to do more, more on that topic. Uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, Naissance? So Naissance was formed in 2014 from ITSIA, which is Jürgen Schmidhuber's lab that has been at the forefront of AI research since the early 90s. Um, so it has many top AI researchers working on both fundamental research and applications industry. And the main focus is industrial automation, so using AI to help manufacturing and production. So I remember seeing this, uh, I believe I remember seeing this at NeurIPS 2019 uh, at the DeepRL workshop, uh, but I, I don't think I understood it at the time. And um, and I, I, maybe I'm just trying to understand it now. So can you help us understand what is going on th with the paper and what is the, the main idea? What is upside down RL? So what is the upside down part? Well, instead of using the return as part of the objective, which you would do in policy search or when you learn value functions, you use it directly as an input. And turns out this turns reinforcement learning into a supervised learning problem. And you just maximize the likelihood of a behavior function on past experiences, which is conditioned on observed returns and the time horizon in which it was achieved. So for example, if a return of 10 was achieved in five time steps, um, given a state in action, then you just train to maximize the probability of taking that action in that state in order to achieve that. So it's a bit like behavioral cloning, but it generalizes beyond rewards achieved by a demonstrator and goes beyond one-step deviations in the loss. So the pros of upside-down reinforcement learning is that it's completely supervised, we don't have any value functions and there's no bootstrapping involved. Um, because it's really just supervised learning, it can benefit from scaling the architecture and we have some unpublished results on that. Um, you can use data augmentation quite easily. There's um, you know, nothing special you have to do. And you can bring in all sorts of other tricks that have been used for supervised learning. And like imitation learning, you can quickly mimic an expert if you have expert data, uh, instead of having to take conservative policy steps like you might do with other methods. We can train it without a discount factor. So you just say the returns within a time horizon. So it's unbiased in that sense. Uh, one of the nice properties is that it has the flexibility to not just achieve high returns, but medium returns or low returns based on what you condition on. So playing AlphaGo wouldn't be any fun, but if you can condition um, it on how well the policy should perform, then actually um, you could come up with an agent that plays at a range of difficulties. And finally, it still uses the Markov assumption, so it's not um, like a black box optimization on this. 
the sort of main con is that it's off the beaten track a bit. Um, so we're still working on improving both the theory and the practice. Um, it's hard to jump straight to state-of-the-art results with a different paradigm. Um, and so one of the things that we do have to do is that you'll notice it misses an explicit reward maximization phase. So the training actually involves something like expectation maximization. So we alternate training with gathering improved data through exploration. And so is the behavior function here kind of like a uh, parameterized policy? Can you tell us more about the, the behavior function and how it works? Yep, um, that is exactly it. So I'd say it's a return conditioned and a time conditioned policy. Um, and one could argue that choosing the appropriate return or time horizon is difficult and it is in the general case, but it's not the case so much in say constrained robotics environments. Um, and yeah, so actually we have unpublished results, but it works well as an offline RL algorithm where this is very relevant. So this is not in the empirical paper um, that Rupesh headed, um, but Jürgen had a conceptual paper on upside down RL, which um, contains some really nifty ideas on how to extend it. Uh, so firstly, the return and the time are just very general goals. So it's really quite trivial to extend upside down RL to goal condition policies. Um, so I think interesting research actually lies elsewhere. Uh, so to be clear, the commands in the paper include the desired return and the desired time horizon, but they could also include traditional goal specifications, but also more abstract commands. Um, so if you're interested in, in where it could go, then you can check out this conceptual paper for more details. So I guess I was a bit surprised um, in the paper that Upside Down RL outperformed A2C in, in some of these environments, which uh, I thought was kind of cool. Do, can, you, can you say anything about why, why it might be able to do that, even though it was, it's doing something that seems simpler? Right, so I think the key difference here against um, more traditional reinforcement learning is the presence of value functions and how you actually learn these value functions. So value functions compute the expectation of the future returns, which is a potentially powerful low variance signal to learn from. So if you learn a good value function, then you can learn quickly, but vice versa, if it's difficult, um, then it, you might get stuck. So we know that one-step returns, for example, in the DQN or DDPG um, is low variance, but biased, whilst n-step or full multicolor returns like A2C or PPO are high variance, but less biased or even unbiased. Uh, on the other hand, upside down arrow doesn't use a value function, so it has different temporal credit assignment properties. So we can see this, that it works very well as is, uh, even when the rewards are delayed. So these are the sparse delayed reward experiments in the paper. This is actually technically a POMDP as the reward function is delayed, um, but because um, the transition dynamics are, are still fully observed, we can solve this with a feed-forward net. Um, if we wanted to extend upside down RL to full MDPs, then it's trivial to do so by just adding an LSTM, for example. Okay, and um, 
could you tell us more about how exploration works in this setting? Like, are we trying to explore command space, or what? What? How does exploration work with uh, upside down RL? So, in this paper, the simple strategy is that you learn a stochastic po policy, and so exploration is done through this. Um, and at the beginning of the episode, we basically find some commands we want to use, and this is basically we we give it the highest return episodes from the replay buffer that's um, used to train the agent. So um, this is very simple um, and it seems to work reasonably well, but it could obviously be improved and optimizing the command proposals to improve exploration is certainly an interesting direction for future work. Okay, now, and um, looking forward for you, what do, what do the next few years look like? Are you going to work on more RL research or, or RL applications? So there's lots of things for me to do here. Um, I'm going to continue pursuing fundamental RL research, such as working on upside down RL, uh, but also working at the intersection of neuroscience and deep learning. So um, implementing models of consciousness, for example. And I may or may not get involved in more applied research here at Araya. Another thing is that I'm in Tokyo to bolster the research community here. So uh, there's lots of universities and startups and there's um, a strong crowd working on machine learning theory, but relatively little research going into more empirical side of deep learning. Um, and Japan is known for robotics, neuroscience, and artificial life. So hoping I can interact more with those communities. Do you want to share any opinions on what you think is missing in RL today and, uh, and what, we could, what we could do about it? So having spent most of my PhD with access to only one GPU, I'm keenly aware of the sample inefficiency of DeepRL. So I used to run an experiment on Atari for about a week and a half, check the results, tweak some hyperparameters, and repeat. Um, so yeah, I think we definitely still need to work on sample efficiency. Um, so non-parametric methods like key nearest neighbors or Gaussian processes can learn very quickly, but they are trickier to scale than deep neural networks. But we can combine and get the best of both worlds, so might call these semi-parametric models. So I'm a big fan of DeepMind's neural episodic control and actually had two papers extending it to use online clustering and the other on maximum entropy policies, which is work done with Andrea Agostinelli, Marta Sarico, and Pierre Richmond at Imperial College. And more recently, episodic memory has cropped up in some of DeepMind's state-of-the-art agents, like Never Give Up in Agent 57. So I think that's an interesting avenue to investigate. Any other strong opinions on where you think we'll find progress um, in RL going forward? I've always believed that we need general purpose representations, maybe even some sort of uh, common sense, and I always thought that multimodal representations, which is exemplified really recently by OpenAI's clip model, um, are going to be vital to understanding the world in a human-like way. Um, and relatedly, I also think it's important to work on embodied agents, and there's lots out there at the moment, um, but one of the more interesting to me um, is the animal AI testbed, which is based on animal cognition experiments. I should say that the intersection of neuroscience and AI will lead to developments, 
Um, though it almost feels like AI is, is feeding a bit more into neuroscience than the other way around at the moment. Um, but still, there's plenty of opportunities. Uh, I'm interested to see how vicarious, who work on uh, probabilistic graphical models, and especially HMMs, um, who are heavily inspired by neuroscience, uh, actually manage to progress. Um, but also, maybe Rich Sutton's bitter lesson is correct in uh, all we need is scale. Do you find uh, anything else uh, in the reinforcement learning world uh, interesting lately, Kai? Yeah, so I'm encouraged to see more interest in offline RL, uh, which is one way to improve sample efficiency um, in terms of environment interactions. Uh, and it's of practical value. So you've got more benchmarks, algorithms, and better understanding of the problem. A um, bit longer term, but there's also been some nice progress in model-based RL which people generally think can result in better sample efficiency, uh, more flexibility, and maybe even better generalization. Uh, Uber AI finally had their first return then explore paper published in Nature. So that's a cool idea, and I look forward to more work from Ken Stanley, Jeff Kloon, and others who work on uh, evolutionary computation, but are also aware of the broader landscape of machine learning. Um, and finally, there was a recent paper from DeepMind on tackling the temporal credit assignment problem uh, called Synthetic Returns for Long-Term Credit Assignment, uh, which uses the predictability of rewards from past states uh, to determine influence and assign synthetic rewards. And this is a really important problem. It's exciting like Rudder was back in the day. And I think making progress on this could really improve the state of RL. So, Dr. Kai Arulkumaran, this has been uh, this has been great. You've given us lots of food for thought here. So, thanks for sharing your time and insight with the Talk RL community. Thanks. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRL Podcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 